to episode 44 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. In this episode, we bring you part two of an exclusive interview we have with Dr. Barner Hesse, the creator of The Eight White Identities. Dr. Hesse explains how white citizens weave in and out of different kinds of identities in relation to racism and anti-racism. He also gives us his opinions on how language, the way we describe things, is the key to real change in this country. And should white Latinos have their own breakdown of identities as well? You're going to want to hear what he has to say. Barner, what do you think is the majority of the country in terms of these eight eight identities? Because there's a part of me that thinks that most of whites in this country, because of the way they voted for Biden and democracy, are mostly within the half of that hierarchy, uh, traitor ab- uh, abolitionists and so forth. Do you believe that to be the case? Where is America? What is the majority composition of whites in America that you've studied? Well, I'm not really in a position to, to comment on that because that's a kind of sort of quantitative uh, sort of sociological study, which is not the kind of study that I engage in. But I'm intrigued yeah. by the fact that you would make the observation of where you think most people might be now. What we need to say about identity, and certainly this sort of configuration of identity, this heuristic, maybe is two things. Firstly, that at different times, you can have white individuals take up any of these identities. So they may be invested in them for a period of time. So, for example, you know, studies have shown that the, there was a decline in the support for Black Lives Matter between August and October in 2020. So that tells you something about the shifting into and out of different kinds of identity in relation to racism and anti-racism. So we're never really sure, right? But the one thing that I would say, so this is my added thing, is that, you know, the institutional pressure in the U.S. has been from white supremacy identities downwards to repress, you know, the kinds of anti-racist identities, right, that emerge lower down the order that I've described in this heuristic. Well, I think one of the things that's begun to happen, certainly over the last four or five years, and maybe this is what you're getting at, is that there is another kind of split that's taking place in white identity. And you saw that happening in the Black Lives Matter protests, which, remember, were global, right, as well as national, right? So when you're beginning to see white identities becoming more invested in naming and challenging structural racism and white supremacy, you're beginning to see a split in the white constituency. And we have to think about how this is going to play out a split in the white consistency so that it can no longer so easily be mobilized behind let's make America great again and get back to white supremacy. 
You know, there's a split around a white identity that's deeply invested in the past and a white identity that is emerging as deeply invested in a very different future from the past. Now, how that plays out to become the opening of more progressive questions or whether it will close down and revert back to more regressive situations, that's what remains to be seen. Creating these identities, these eight white identities and and all the outrage people felt about it and felt like, you know, how dare they be questioned as to who they are. And, and you mentioned that when they try to break it down, they're not really breaking it down. They're, they're kind of supporting what you're saying because of their analysis really kind of lends itself to the analysis you've given. But this whole thing happening and the reaction to it over the last seven years. And, and I can't say that there's got to be, it's peaked, I think, this time. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is, it's gotten bigger than it ever has for a number of reasons. Partially, I think, because of what's happened with the loss of Donald Trump and these people thinking and believing this lie he spun and, and what that did to them. But I, I'm curious, do you feel that anything is going to change? And do you feel that looking at identity is a way that if white people were to actually embrace this, that would force them to change. Do you feel like that it's that simple? No, okay. both you and I know it's not that simple. You cannot force people to change, but you can create conditions in which people encounter the possibility of change and have to take into consideration something that they didn't have to consider before, which might oblige them to think about what change means. And that means creating new kinds of different situations. Often it's different kinds of conversations. One of the things that I noticed that was different about Black Lives Matter in 2020, which was not there in 2017, was that the language changed. In 2017, you could not get CNN or MSNBC or any prominent politicians to talk about white supremacy and structural racism. But by 2020 and 2021, Joe Biden is talking about the need to defeat white supremacy. And he didn't simply mean who class clan. So part of what changes people or creates the possibility of change is when we see the language for how we describe things changing. And for those who want to keep things the same and are deeply invested conservatively in things unchanging, then one of the places where the conflict is going to take place is at the level of language and discourse. By trying to combat these new kinds of descriptions, trying to exclude these possibilities of talking about things, for example, in the past that never get spoken about, you know, atrocities from the past, Jim Crow, slavery, and so on. So it's a little bit of a, a, you know, a, a development when you can shift the language. Because if you can shift the language, people who couldn't previously speak can now speak with that language available to them. Mm -hmm. And then we have to organize around that and, and push at that 
and begin to see how that plays through. Barner, I'm hearing you, and there's the, there's that great possibility of change by being aware of the information that these eight white identities provide. Whenever any, when anybody has the education, the information, it does help. And I'm wondering if the Latino community should have their own eight Latino identities, even maybe even in the black community, they should have their eight black identities. Maybe every ethnicity or every race should have it. Do you believe that 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 could help? Well, no, I don't believe that. And I don't think you believe it either. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a formula, okay? This is just an, an analytical way of looking at the world. But you are reminding me that many of the racist e emails that I got said something like, well, what if I came up with eight white identities and black identities? You know, I would be called a racist. And I started to think, well, the people writing to me seem to think that the last 300 years hasn't been spent dissecting black populations and putting them into categories and listing them or dissecting Latino populations and putting them into categories and listing them. Latinos have gone from Hispanic to Latino to Latinx. That tells you something about a history of cataloging and classifications and so on. Now, Generally, in research, when you put something into a category and you begin to use it to see if it helps you understand things, it gives you insight into your society. What you do with that is another set of considerations. You know, you can use categories to be progressive or you can use categories to be regressive. There's nothing intrinsic to listing things or mapping things out that makes it lead in the direction of social change or even in the direction of conservatism, right? So all of which is to say that there exists thousands of listings of Latinos and Blacks. There's lots of work that's been done on those communities, analyzing those communities and so on. Comparatively, there's been very less work done on analyzing white communities. Correct. That brings up, I think, a, a great point. And, and this is a, the last part of our interview I want to ask you about. Again, coming back to what I was saying, identity. Jack asked an interesting question, and I love your answer, that we have been categorized, you know, there. But our, some of our categories just lend themselves to myth. You know, the model minority, the, you know, the good Negro, the all, all those myths. But I feel and and we've talked about this not quite so specifically, but eight white identities. There are a lot of black folks and a lot of Latino folks who want to identify as white. Like the and white Latino, Mike. You've, like you've the kind white of put it. Like where does this fit? Where does the this white fit? Latino? Who like where like how do you see this affecting uh, blacks and Latinos specifically without them realizing it, like that they're in there, but they don't even know it. So I need to uh, maybe reiterate again that because I'm saying eight white identities, this is just illustrating things that I saw. It's not saying this is the total of things that you could see. So somebody could come up with 28 white identities. All you do is when you come up with the numbers, try to justify 
why you came up with that number. And I think that that's a range. Well, in the original uh, sort of listing that went out, one of the things it said was that people who identify with white identity, okay? And that will include white people and it will include non-white people. The way in which we find ourselves identifying at times with white identity or the white identity positions is because we inhabit a society that's been built on institutionalizing the behavior, the emotions, the reactions, the dreams, the aspirations, the fears of largely white citizens. So, you know, if you go to the movies and you, and you watch a set of movies and it, and it gives you a sense of, you know, an emotional rush and you can feel all of those things, but you might go away recognizing at some point that there's certain kinds of emotions that you feel as a, as a black person, as a brown person, that's never represented in the movies at all. And it's never represented in the movies because it's not what white people feel, Right. Now, we can feel what white people feel, and maybe if there's a way in which we can express our emotions in those spaces, we only get to express those emotions legitimately if they approximate what white people feel. So similarly with identities, identities, the kind of behavior you're going to have, the kind of way that you look at the society, the history that you draw upon when you're talking about political and cultural and social change. It may be the same history you draw upon that white people draw upon. You may end up saying, and here's a good example, when Obama was in power, whenever Obama wanted to say something about the history of America as the land of freedom, he had to tell the same story almost in the same way as all the 40 plus presidents before him, mm. right? That's the only way he could unify the nation. He couldn't say it was free, but it kind of wasn't. <laughs> he couldn't say, you know, we had democracy, but we also had this other shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> he, couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't say that, right? And, and it's not necessarily that he was pretending. He had learned that identity or the narrative that came from that identity. So as you're beginning to see that these forms of identities, they are often in the keep of institutions and in how we respond to those institutions. Institutional behavior requires us to identify in particular kinds of ways. If we go to the movies, we're required to watch it in particular kinds of ways. I like to watch a lot of old movies, right? I watch... Um, Turner Classic Movies, it's where, I, it's where I learn about America. And if you watch some old movies from about the 30s and 40s, you'll always see black people coming into the screen or off the screen as, can I get that for you? Can I help you with that, sir? As people who are not really part of the main story, but part of the background that we never see. You can learn to look at America that way and begin to identify with that as a way of thinking about the world as it revolves around white privilege. And you assume that you're part of that. So this is why there's a struggle going on for alternative visions. This is why people start talking about being unapologetically black 
making black movies, making black writers have expression, developing black studies to give this alternative and additional viewpoint about the nature of society. Well, you've definitely given us an alternative viewpoint about the nature of society today. I have to say, I've thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but dismantling unconscious beliefs. Do you, I, I feel like your eight white identities confront people and it confronts people to, I, I, I think the very idea that they could be categorized, that the very idea that they, they might fit into one of these, or I, I don't know if you've gotten letters that say, well, I'm none of these things. You know, what about, what do I, where do I fit? Are there any responses you've gotten that really have been instructive in terms of this whole thing to me seems like a social experiment in itself. Well, as I said to you off air, I'm actually bemused by the whole thing. I'm surprised that there's been such a reaction, both positively and negatively. Now, I have had people say to me, I find myself on one of these identities working towards the next one up. Equally, I've had people say, I'm none of these identities. And I think both of those reactions are acceptable. See, the thing about an identity, maybe this is where I should finish, is that what an identity describes is how we see ourselves in relation to other people that we think are similar to us. And when we see ourselves in relation to other people we think are similar to us, we base that on what we hold in common with those other people. Now, what we hold in common with other people is an identity. So it's not whether you fit into a particular identity. It's whether you find yourself taking up a political identity, which is to say identifying with someone else in this particular kind of way. So these identities are there, and they're there institutionally, and they're there in groups, and they're there in organizations. And the question is, when they are there, do we identify with them or do we not? Do we combine a series of identities as part of who we are? Because if you look at these eight wide identities and you say, well, I don't identify with any of them, but how dare you speak to me because I'm a white person? You clearly identify with some kind of white identity because you're positioned like that in the society, which enables you to see who you feel you have commonalities with on this question. So maybe that's a white identity I didn't catch in my net, but it's definitely a white identity. Jack, I have to tell you, this is probably one of the most powerful and enlightening interviews I've ever done. Uh, I've ever done clearly on this show, but definitely in, in my life. The way I would describe it for me was kind of like putting on a new pair of glasses, where now I have a new prescription. I see the same things I've seen before, but I see it more sharply and more clearly than I ever did before. 
There were a couple of things I know that really struck me that we're going to talk about on our clubhouse next week. But I know you had a couple of things as well that struck you. So I'd love to talk just of your thoughts on the interview and, and then the things that struck you most. Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I think the whole interview struck me. I've been going through a level of personal growth since May of last year around where George Floyd died. And that personal growth has been about knowing more about my culture, America, the country, uh, how my parents have lived, how I live within the gaze of white citizens in this country, and how I've been shaped and carved and influenced by the white identities, by these eight white identities. It's it's to say that I am purely Latino would be a lie because of the amount of influence I've had from white Americans that hearing his whole interview has left me honestly lying in bed for a couple of days just looking at the <laughs> ceiling and I trying to exactly wrap my <laughs> trying to wrap my head around exactly what it is and process this amount of information that has been life-changing to uh, well i definitely feel similar for me you know i you know i'm always talking about context and everything is about context and i had a very similar feeling where i i've thought i've processed relationships i've had both with white people and myself and with with white culture just living in a, a white dominant culture i process it through that lens and through that that objectivity, one of the greatest gifts I think of it for me was finding a, a way to name these things. Like we've encountered, I've encountered every single identity on there. It really, really struck me a few things through that. But overall, like you said, it, it's given me a new way of looking at this country, at myself, and just the things we take for granted about living in a society that is completely dominated by another culture where you're still trying to carve out your individuality. Yeah, I hear you, man. I remember going to art school. I went to Parsons, and one of the things you take is art history. And these are like these deep art history classes. And you hear or you read about these artists who are doing a kind of art. Then they named it something. It, it was like they were doing it before there was a name for it. And in the same way, w what he was really saying that colonialism you know, which is just a word we use today to describe how they dominated all these different cultures. They give like these, this a rationale for why it's biological, why there's a superiority, why there's even a belief in the concept of a, a white superiority. And like you said, you, you sort of think there, there's a biology to where you came from when it has a lot more to do with colonialism. The quote that really stood out to me was the anthropology quote. So when we turn to the eight white identities, it becomes a shock. It becomes a shock to the system in which the last 500 years has involved white academics and legislators and political elites documenting, researching, analyzing, non-white populations. In fact, there's an academic discipline called anthropology. Anthropology in university departments is predicated on research into non-white populations. It would be staggering if somebody said, I wanted to research a white population. 
And if that person was African or Asian or so on, it would be staggering. Why would it be staggering? Because it's challenging existing power relations. So I think that's part of what was unsettling. This idea that white people are not simply normal people, but they do have activities that can be studied and analyzed as white identities. What, what really struck me about that was, uh, again, when I say that it's sort of like putting on glasses, you know, you always knew what anthropology was. I always, you know, I was aware of the study of anthropology. You know, we all have seen National Geographic. But even when you say National Geographic, the whole idea that these uh, quote unquote scientists went into these cultures, but I, I never realized that that objectivity. I never really kind of put it together and I never heard it quite like that, Jed. It's all about studying these cultures that are non-white. All of our lives, I think we've heard about, you know, this culture, this native culture, this indigenous culture that belong in the places, let's just say often that are colonized or pilloried. And the idea that there's been such a backlash to the eight white identities and the categorization of white identity suggests to me that, wow, the categorizers don't want to be categorized. There is one dominant group that wants their story to be the principal story of not only America, but of the world. And they're willing to do anything that they can, changing policies, law, to make sure that it stays like that. And the question is, will it? Wow, that's that's a scary question considering what's just gone down in the last week. Clearly what happened in Atlanta was in reaction to the fact that more people came out to vote than ever before cuz you know, it's less than 40% of the people vote even though we're the seat or the heart of democracy on the planet supposedly. And when the people spoke, they said we don't want this. So it's sort of like, okay, that's what happens when you play fair. So no more playing fair. So they're like, okay, well, the kid gloves are off. We're going to play totally dirty. We're going to make it illegal for you to even give water to somebody online. Not to mention the fact that we have the power to get rid of anything we don't like, anybody we don't like, any vote we don't like, any district we don't like. Any, uh, It's ridiculous. But it also suggests that is a shock to the system. They don't want things to change. They will do anything to hold on to that power. The more I think about the eight white identities and Jen, just the principle behind how it is to be the culture, the standard for art, the standard for intelligence, the standard for education, these sta everything, these are all white standards. If you meet somebody who doesn't speak the way white people speak, you may think they're less intelligent. It's sort of programmed into you. You know, if you hear somebody with an accent, there's this bias in America that even though they're speaking another language, they're less intelligent somehow. That's it for this 44th episode of Brown and Black. If you like this conversation with Dr. Barner Hesse, please come listen to our live Clubhouse conversation about the eight white identities this Friday, April 9th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time with our guest hosts, Rocio and Mercedes of the Rocio and Mercedes podcast. And please follow us on Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information. We leave you with a trailer from our friends, Rocio and Mercedes. 
My name is Rocio, and I am first-generation Dominican. Hi, I'm Mercedes, and I was born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. And we are Amplifying the Afro in Afro-Dominican. This podcast is about our journey of embracing our Blackness and being Dominican, growing up in New York City, and not really realizing how Black I really am. How many times have you heard, oh my God, I didn't know you were Dominican. Yeah. How many times have you heard that? I I want to say almost every time. Yeah. Like, what is that? Yeah. We're Dominican. Okay. We got black. Mm -hmm. There's no denying in that. We like both look like black women, (laughs) but we both have completely different complexions. And we have different experiences based on first gen and, you know, me being born in DR and living here in the States. Okay. So we're going to talk about mad stuff. Like we're going to be talking about um, hair. Oh my God. We have to talk about hair. Your hair journey is great, great. Yeah. Like natural hair. Yeah. That's the whole journey in and of itself. Yeah. Especially being Dominican. Oh my God. You don't even know. Yeah. And food, of course. We need to talk about food. Dominican food is definitely a specialty. But more importantly, we really want to talk about how we embrace our own journeys of embracing our blackness. Yeah, I like talking and touching about like our African heritage and our indigenous heritage. Putting aside that whole Spaniard European narrative, because I'm a little tired of it. Okay. Yeah. Or, you know, if you have similar experiences or, you know, you want to learn more about being Dominican and you know yeah we know we're black yeah and tune in and you know get some coffee or get some mimosas and join us on this journey okay hashtag hashtag what amplifying the afro and afro dominican hashtag rocio mercedes hashtag afro hashtag despair hashtag bajon hashtag bajon hashtag malo hashtag coffee and bustillo (laughs) just tune in okay it's gonna be fun are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our start up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.